This podcast is developed by Bridge Bio to educate ourselves and the public about living with a rare disease. Since our guests aren't scripted and are free to speak their minds, their views and opinions do not necessarily reflect the views and policy of Bridge Biopharma. This is part two of our two-part series about ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to On Rare, a rare disease podcast produced by Bridge Bio. Thanks for joining us for part two, the conclusion of our conversation with Beth and Holly, the surviving spouses of two men who died of ALS. Here is my colleague, David Rintel, head of patient advocacy at Bridge Bio. He will continue the conversation so that we can learn more about this devastating disease, which truly affects the entire family. Hi, David. Hi, Mandy. We left off in part one with Holly telling us what it was like to tell her kids that their father was diagnosed with ALS and how they reacted. Beth, what was your experience? Well, I think across the board, the children were devastated. At the time, I had three who were college age or above, and then we have two younger children for whom we are guardians who were late elementary. Mm -hmm. I think they were overwhelmed because the ones living at home could watch him get progressively sicker. So I think at the time of diagnosis, they had little understanding of what was to come. And we didn't really talk about it being fatal because I felt that would be scary to them. You know, obviously that was something we dealt with as he got sicker. And they could see the physical changes, you know, from Chris was walking, but for long distances, he needed the full motorized wheelchair. He lost his voice early on and he lost his ability to swallow. So he was on tube feedings probably six months from diagnosis. Um, My son that was on deployment actually came home. So he was in the area. My daughter came out. Um, at least once a month uh, to see her dad. So mm-hmm. it was really hard. Yeah, yeah. I could only imagine. So I'm interested in how you did learn to care for yourselves. And I know that one of the uh, challenges of being a partner of someone with a very difficult condition is that people give you advice about how to take care of yourself that often really misses the mark. I wonder, in addition to finding each other, how you managed to look after yourselves during this experience? I learned to meditate. <laughs> I'm one of those people who gets up and I'm, I'm either an on switch or an off switch. So I would get up and just start going. And so one of the things that I did and I have continued to do is mm-hmm. I would get up in the morning and I would meditate for 10 or 15 minutes and just calm myself before I went out to face anything that was going to happen. Yeah. I enjoy the mornings and I would go outside and, and just stand around outside. I did a lot of walking. I had, I, whenever I had yeah. care or people who were here, I would I made sure that I did a lot of exercise and I tried to get a lot of sleep, which is not easy to do. One of the most important roles in my case that I played for Carl was gatekeeper with people that wanted to come and see him. And when they would come to see him, I would just turn on a timer for 20 minutes because I'm as bad as anybody else at paying attention to time. 
but I knew that 20 minutes was all Carl could handle. And so the timer would go off and it would be an easy way to kind of get people to leave because it would go off. And then you'd say, oh yeah, you know, you don't have to look at your watch or anything. But that was really important was also managing his time for him and also for me. We just needed time to be with ourselves. Yes. Beth, how did you find a way to take care of yourself? I found work to be my refuge. Mm -hmm. I worked two days a week at the hospital and Mm -hmm. I found that keeping that normal rhythm gave me a break from the disease. It gave me some normalcy in my life, which I didn't have when I was at home. I think that was really important to me. And you walk the thin line between feeling guilty that you're not there 24 Mm seven, but also realizing that time helped me refill my bucket and have the patience to deal with it. I believe that Chris had some cognitive changes as well in his disease. Um, One of them seemed to be that he really lost a filter. Mm -hmm. And so it was hard to walk on eggshells and so removing myself from the situation helped me come back with much more patience yeah and you have to save enough energy for yourself as the caregiver and for the person who's sick you know i mean it's your your i i mean you're constantly yanked in a whole bunch of different directions and you know you have to it one of the big challenges for me was to try to be to give myself enough grace to say, this is as much as I can do. I'm doing everything that I can do. And, you know, that's, it's really important because it's a long haul disease and it doesn't end well. I mean, there's, there's no, you have to find, you have to dig and you have to find your own joy. You have to find the things that are important to you and you have to relish them and pay attention to them because it's just awful. And there's nothing, as I said to my mom and to my kids, whatever happens today, this is the best day Carl's going to have. This is it. It's either going to be the same or he's going to get worse. It's never better. Shifts your priorities about finding joy in things, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you both. I think it's a challenge to look after yourself when you're also looking after someone else and As Beth said, you feel guilty, but you also know that you need to take care of yourself in order to be of help to your loved one. And I have to say the best day in the the journey was the day I met Holly through a mutual friend. And I think having someone who has walked the walk, um, can laugh, can cry um, together. Swear. Swear. (laughs) (laughs) made the journey doable. Um, And of course, Holly was ahead of us in some ways in the game and um, could give me really good advice, get that wheelchair ordered now, even though he was still walking, rent a mobile van for the wheelchair. You don't need to buy one. Um, There was just so much advice that saved me both time and money. Interestingly enough, I'm the nurse. So when it came to giving the IV meds or tube feedings, that was not a problem for me. And I can't imagine for someone like Holly who had no medical background, the daily care was daunting because you were learning not only the care itself, but dealing with the disease. (laughs) 
I don't know anything about nursing. I'm, I'm an English major. I'm forever grateful for the people in the respiratory therapy place because they taught me everything about how to do all of the things that you need to do to take care of a person who has chosen to have a tracheostomy and then a feeding pain. And if anybody had ever told me that I could do that, I would have said they were out of their mind, out of their mind. I mean, the things that you learn to do, and it's, and I, and I say this, and it's an important piece of this conversation for people who are thinking about it. It's certainly not for everyone, but you can learn to do this and you can do amazing things that you don't think you can do. And it's, it's all, it's all possible. Well, so this is a hard question to ask and you can say no, or you can respond, but if we're really going to look at ALS and living with ALS from the perspective of the partner, I guess I need to ask you if you have recollections of the end of the lives of your husbands that you would feel comfortable sharing. I'll, I'll, I'll take that as a start. Beth and I, our experiences were different with what our husbands chose to do too. There's an opportunity when you get to the point where you're having trouble breathing and it gets to your diaphragm where you can choose to have a tracheostomy and be on a ventilator that breathes for you. And very, very small percentage of people choose to do it. Carl chose to, to have a trach, uh, to, to trach and have a feeding peg put in at the same time. He was on a non-invasive ventilator 24 hours a day. He could still walk. He could take it off and walk if he wanted to go to the bathroom or sit down and have a shower or something. He had the surgeries in January of 2018. He was uh, supposed to only be in rehab for two weeks. He was there for two months. He was able to walk when he went in, but by the time he came home, he had lost so much muscle mass. Mm -hmm. He was so much muscle, he could no longer walk. And so he was in a hospital bed from the time he came home. Um, but again, he still had this incredible optimism mm -hmm. and, um, we put the hospital bed in the family room because we decided that the best place to put it was where everybody was. So we could all be with him 24 mm seven. -hmm. Um, even though we had done some work on our house so that he yeah. could be in our bedroom and have yeah. a beautiful view and be able to go outside yeah. into the backyard. We just decided to put him in the family room, which was a great decision that was made literally while he was coming home from the hospital. Uh, we just moved the bed. <laughs> so uh, we had full-time care to help me um, to help take care of him because someone needed to have eyes on Carl 24 seven when you're on a ventilator yeah. uh, and you can't speak. So he lived until October of 2018 and, you know, ALS marches on when you have a, when you have a tracheostomy and you have a feeding peg, but the rest of your body is still, the muscles are still deteriorating. And so he got to the point mm -hmm. where he was having trouble being able to go to the bathroom and, you know, all these things of kind of personal space and, yeah. and I was having concerns because it's it's not easy to find a caregiver. You have to be outside of a system to have a caregiver who can do anything with a ventilator. But we had two good, really great caregivers and me. And then one of them had a family emergency and she had to leave. And he was having all these troubles. And I was really concerned about how we were going to manage this. Do we hire a new person and train them how to use the ventilator and all that kind of stuff? And one morning I said to him, I don't know what to do. I'm feeling like we're really, uh, we're really struggling here and I'm not, I, you know, I, I don't know what to do. And he looked at me and he said, I'm done. Yeah. And I was horrified 
because I felt like what I had said had now prompted him to then say, I'm done. And somehow I was responsible for this, which I'm not. And I have forgiven myself for even feeling that way, but it was really, really hard. And the social worker who we saw, who was so wonderful had said to me, when Carl decides that he is finished on the ventilator, I thought, oh, you'd say, oh, I think I'm going to turn off the ventilator. It'll be a couple weeks or a month or something. No, she said, and sure enough, he said, I said, well, what, what do we do? And he said, call the girls. And I said, okay. And, and I said, when do you want them to come? And he said, now. And I said, when do you want to turn the ventilator off? And he said, tomorrow. And so that process started and that's what we did. And we had a fabulous 24 hours with him and, and we were all there in the room. Um, and, um, I would, I would do that again in a heartbeat, you know, um, because what, what it did for Carl mm -hmm. was allow him to be in control of his decisions all mm -hmm. the way to the end. So, um, it's, it's, uh, it was a, it was a really difficult thing to do, but one of the things that I will say is that the, the, I've asked my daughters and we've talked about it many times. There was nothing that was left unsaid. Everything that we wanted to say to each other, we got to say to each other because we made sure that that was happening all the way along. And then we were able to say our goodbyes and actually be standing in the room and be with him. And it's the one thing I would say to people. And I've, when I talk to people who've talked to me yeah. who have ALS is please make sure that you say everything that you want to say to the person and don't hold back. Hmm. No. Well, and you can never really anticipate what the time is going to be. Beth? Our end of story was fast. He was diagnosed in March of 2018, as we said. He was rapidly declining. He was on the vent 24-7. He could, what they call, sprint off of it. He used a walker to get to the bathroom. And at that point, he was fully on a peg, or the feeding tube. He was on three medicines. Two were routine one was experimental, but unfortunately in June of 2019, I was out on a walk with my daughter. He got up to the bathroom and uh, was doing his usual morning routine, dropped a washcloth apparently and um, fell over. And I discovered him probably within an hour of his fall, but he was off his ventilator. So he was unconscious and I would say barely alive. I mean, his, he still had a heartbeat, but he had shallow respirations. The good news was I grabbed his vent, got him on the vent. 911 was called, they came and he had a full cognitive recovery. Um, he was vented for a few days. We thought he was coming home, but he developed pneumonia. And at that point in time, he refused further care. So his time from diagnosis yeah. to death was a year and three months. But, um, you know, obviously it was premature because yeah. of his fall. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think hindsight, that was very traumatic for the whole family. Um, of course, I've had the what ifs and I should haves and all of the things you would normally do. Yeah. 
Yeah. One thing that I learned is that he had no mechanism for if he were to fall to call for help because he obviously couldn't. We had the two little boys were or the two teenagers were in the house, but he had no way to call out when he fell down because he had no voice. But having some type of, you know, emergency alert bracelet or call button, you know, seems basic. But, you know, that wasn't anything that was recommended to us. And I, and I think by far you need, you need a fall alert of some type. You know, Chris did, was given the option of being reintubated and or traked. And, and he just said no and opted for us to withdraw um, all of his life support. So um, he died in June of 2019. For our family, the fact that Chris woke up from being unconscious and had five days or six days to decide what to do gave us a lot of time for that conversation. Mm. I think what was hard was he was dealing that week with the reality that he was going to die from his disease. And I think that just made that week particularly intense, but I think it it was an opportunity for all of us to be able to say what we needed to say. And I think hindsight, had he died on the bathroom floor, would have been much more difficult for my daughter and I both to process over time. You know, it's, um, excuse me for a moment, but um, I think part of losing someone is experiencing regrets. Sorry. Even if we, the person who's experiencing the loss, has done everything, more than everything, things that you could never have dreamed of doing. I think in in both of your cases, from my perspective, you were able to convert love into incredible caring. You know, the regret is always that we don't have the power to change the outcome. Yeah, and that we all have an expiration date, you know, and I think that's a really hard thing to come to terms with. And... One of the things I will say about this is that with the the goal that I know our family had and we talked about it was trying to live with as much joy as we could during this period of time and working really hard on not having regrets and forgiving ourselves for anything that we may have, you know, my daughter slamming the door when she would leave, you know, um, <laughs> you know they're not, it's not that they're not yeah. sad. We're sad. Each one of us talk a lot and we're sad every day. What we do regret is something, as mm. you said, David, mm. when you started this, mm. there's a limit to the time that you get with somebody, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, well, as a non-expert, let me also add what an incredible blessing it is to be connected to another person who is caring for someone living with ALS. And the two of you were brought together and were able to support each other and are still able to support each other. So, Holly, if if you were going to give a couple pieces of advice to families, I know we've talked about this a lot. What, as your parting gift, would you recommend? I think there are probably two 
things that are are most important to me. One of them is talking as a family and doing what is important. Things become clear in the face of a tragedy like this if you can talk about in particular what the needs are for the person who has ALS and also the family members. What's going to give everyone as much comfort as possible? And then the second one is to try to live with as much optimism and grace and joy as you possibly can in every day and be kind to yourself because it's really hard. I agree with the, the caretaker has to be find a a way to care for themselves and get the equipment early and the support, you know, the in-house support as well said it very well with whatever day you're at is is the best day that person's going to have. And so trying to prepare for each of those changes um, in advance is important. I would close by saying, I think for us, one of the healing mechanisms for both Beth and I is to be available to other people living with ALS and dying with ALS because it can feel so lonely and it's just really helpful to have someone else there to talk to. Absolutely. So thank you, Holly. Thank you, Beth. Thank you, David. Thank you for letting us share our story. We appreciate it. I have to repeat the word. I hope that this research can give families like yours hope and that one day there'll be success and there'll be medicines that can be helpful. So Well, and we appreciate those companies who are reaching out and trying to find a cure. We we know that the meds that are available are not enough and working on this, we're very thankful for. Wonderful, thank you. I love the rapport between Holly and Beth, and it's just one of those unexpected aspects of life is that sometimes we're brought together with each other in adversity and those relationships become very strong and close. And I think that's true for Holly and Beth. I found myself a little bit speechless, David. Honestly, it's heartbreaking, but at the same time, the relationship between these two women as a result of this horrid disease is really heartwarming. I also learned so much from talking to them One aspect of ALS I had not known and not thought about is that when a person develops ALS, they do not have long to live, but the diagnosis is usually made in around the middle of their remaining years. So by the time uh, an individual and family hears the diagnosis, they've already lost time. It's just very, very tragic. The diagnosis takes a long time and I think in the beginning, ALS looks like a lot of other conditions, a lot of other neurologic conditions. The other thing that strikes me about ALS, and I hope that these two podcast parts will help with this, is that everyone has kind of heard of ALS because it was associated with the name of a very famous baseball player, Lou Gehrig, who I recall actually in my childhood. Also, another baseball player, Pete Frades who played for Boston College, was diagnosed with ALS and started the Ice Bucket Challenge, which became very popular on social media and really spread the word about ALS and raised a lot of money for the advocacy organizations, which they've used to invest in research. But talking to Holly and Beth helps us know what it's like to really live firsthand with ALS. I would also add to that list Stephen Hawking's, which I think um, Beth and Holly brought up. It's this interesting dichotomy of trying to live to the fullest while also planning 
for death, which is what they both had to do. I think they talked a little bit about trying to stay in step with the disease progression, but at the same time still trying to maintain hope, support their spouse, take care of themselves. No one knows what tomorrow might bring, but they had an idea of what tomorrow might bring. Holly and Beth really had to look death in the face. And I think it's remarkable that they really had to do it for their family and to bring their adult children into the conversation. And also, it sounds like at times, their husbands who were really busy trying to live as fully as possible and not addressing what was happening to them from day to day. The fortitude of these women is yeah. impressive. The, every moment matters. But again, the, the relationship that these women had and the support they provided one another, um, I'm sure they treasure. It's certainly the silver lining in all of this. Yeah. Thank you, David, for this incredible conversation and a very special thanks to Dr. Groth for helping us understand ALS a little bit more. I want to thank Amy Brooks, our fabulous producer, who doesn't talk on these podcasts, but she makes them happen. And thanks to Beth and Holly for their courage to speak with us today. To learn more, visit I Am ALS and the ALS Association. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Thank you for being with us today and please join us for our next conversation on Rare.